this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com henrik was born in the late 1960s near dresden in east germany the area was sarcastically known as Tal der Anlosen, or Valley of the Clueless, as the area generally was not able to receive TV from West Germany. His mother was a teacher and his father was required to be a member of the Communist Party as his role at the university involved map making, which was classified as secret work. It's not until he's eight or nine that Henrik realises there's another Germany. And as he gets older, he gets into Western music as he can still pick up West German radio. In 1983, his favourite grandmother moves to the West and starts to bring in Western clothing and vinyl records. At 15 or 16, he seriously starts to think about how he can get to the West. Compulsory service in the National People's Army beckons, increasing his urgency in finding a way to leave. And in 1988, Henrik receives an unexpected postcard from Spain. It's from a friend who had been sentenced to two years for trying to escape, and this begins to crystallise Henrik's plans. I'm delighted to welcome Henrik to our Cold War conversation. Yeah, so I was born in East Germany, uh, in the area around Dresden, and uh, that was um, late 60s, early 70s, my early childhood. And uh, it was a happy childhood. I did not have any, um, you know, thoughts about um, that there could be another Germany where things are better. As a child, you don't really care where you play. And my parents gave me a brilliant upbringing. We went out into nature a lot. We read stories. We played. I, I have a sister. I had really good friends in school. And um, it was one of those East German childhoods where you really... Um, have everything you need to be perfectly honest and um it also in terms of time i would say uh the late 60s early 70s uh were the peak of east germany when uh people thought you know after the building of the Berlin wall things had settled down in this country in this part of the country and uh, people who had remained kind of made peace with the system uh, made their peace with the system and where were you living? Was it a Plattenbau you were living in? It was a Plattenbau. It was one of those uh, high-rise uh, buildings on the outskirts of Dresden. Again, my parents' biggest nightmare, especially my mother, she always said, oh, I don't want to live in the old town with all these uh, sort of buildings down by the River Elbe where the water's creeping up the walls and uh, where, you know, East Germany, there was no money to do up places. Uh, it was basically still in the shape and form kind of status of what it had in the 1930s. And um, old uh, buildings were not something you wanted to live in, with the ovens and the coal from the from the cellar. So my parents always dreamt about having a, a fresh, newly built flat, and that's exactly what we moved into in 1970, 1971, one of the two. And um, so you know, central heating, uh, nice uh, asbestos played by balcony, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the typical standard little kitchen, yeah. kids' room, and so on. And uh, yeah, that's uh, where I had my friends and where I knew where my, and which window uh, in the Plattenbau across they would live. And we would kind of make signs with the lamps uh, in the evenings and just kind of Morse code something. And uh, it was a protected child. And, and what did your, your parents do for a living? 
my mother was a teacher and unluckily also at the same school as me for the first four years of my school career. Uh, there were three um, POS, Polytechnical uh, Oberschulen, in, in this um, living area. And so she was there and then they built a fourth one. So when I was here five, fünfte Klasse, um, she moved to this other school, which was good because it's not never a good thing if you're, you're in the same school with my mom and we did have a few run-ins. Oh, really? <laughs> she didn't teach me, but she was sometimes uh, cover lessons, but there were a few things I want to uh, talk about when, um, you know, the sort of policies of the state um, clashed with my behavior and my mother was kind of right in between that as a representative to uh, of the state in a way as a teacher to uh, uh, having to uphold uh, the dogmas in a way. What were your parents' views on the the state? Were were any of them members of the party? My father was a member of the party um, because he worked in a part of the university which was involved in um, map making and that was all top secret in itself and um, he had a, a party sittings like once a month where he had to go to but otherwise he was not active there and my mother never joined the party no my father um was privileged in 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 the sense that it all came from his professionalism or from from his work it wasn't anything to do with any uh party affiliations or or uh towing the line it was pretty much because he was an, an excellent um professional in his field and uh he got chosen to go on an antarctic expedition in the late 70s that was a soviet expedition and they went down there by big ship and uh, to Antarctica. And um, so, in a way, they had to take on fresh water and things like this uh, in, Mo in Mauritius, for instance, and on the way back in the Congo and in Tenerife. So, they were allowed on land there. In a way, these were Western countries, or they were not Western European. I mean, Tenerife belongs to Spain, obviously. And um, so, yeah, that was a, a big thing. And um, it was an amazing, uh, he was gone for half a year and spent the uh, Antarctic uh, summer down there. And he brought me some nice things from these countries. And what I've just been saying is this. So, for instance, my um, father brought me from Mauritius an orange T-shirt, which um, had just printed on it a palm tree in a sunset, and it said Mauritius. So now there was a rule in East German schools. There was no school uniform as such. You didn't have to wear the pioneers and free German youth outfits all the time. That was just on special occasions like the 1st of May or if there was like a um, East German Soviet friendship evening or something like this. Yeah, so we could wear private clothes and um, some people just had Western clothes because they had uh, Western relatives. And it in a way split the class into two. So when you talk about classless society in East Germany, that's not really what it was because you could see it um, straight away when you looked at the students in a class, the pupils uh, who had Western relatives who didn't. You could see it in the clothes and in everything. And um, so uh, people wore Western clothes as well. Jeans wasn't allowed, uh, but anything else, as long as it didn't have anything printed on it because that could easily be viewed as uh, Western propaganda. Now, in, in my mind, having a sunset and a palm tree and the word Mauritius printed on an orange T-shirt is not Western propaganda. And I had to show my friends I had that T-shirt, but my mother had uh, explicitly forbidden me from wearing this at school. Now, I wore it. I ran around uh, 
at break time, the schoolyard. I ran around the schoolyard at break time, and uh, it happened to be that my mother was on duty, and she saw that. And she was absolutely um, humiliated by it, and she was very angry, and she marched me home. And um, as a consequence, she took a pair of uh, big tailor scissors and cut it apart, that T-shirt. And that just shows, you know, that was a special present from my dad, how much um, this sort of rules and uh, politics and party policies played into everyday life and, and got into the, in the way of um, child-parent relationships, for instance. Well, what about your... Um school school friends uh what you know what sort of families did they did they come from well it was a mining area uranium actually and um a lot of uh the parents of my friends in school were miners but then there were the so-called intelligentsia parents uh to which i can't mine uh definitely and there were um a few of the so-called um, tradesmen uh, in terms of, um, you know, plumbers and people who worked in other sorts of factories, uh, not private businesses, but just employed by by the state. And uh, I think one father was a policeman and so on, just a kind of normal mix of what the population was. It did none of this mattered when, when you were in the lower school years. But uh, as soon as you become kind of a preteen and a teenager, you really got interested in, um, you know, clothes and music and all of this. Uh, and in, in that case, if you didn't have Western relatives, you uh, just didn't have what everybody wanted. And it might sound very shallow, but that's what you're like as, a, as an, uh, an early teen. That's what you're interested in. And I didn't have any relatives in the West. So I grew up, uh, my mom, well-meaning, knit me all of these things. She knit me like a, a short sleeve jumper knitted for the summer and i you know as much effort as you put in i just didn't want to wear it and uh you know when germany you always say germany is kind of 10 years behind the trends of britain and america anyway but then east germany was pretty much in the early 70s when in the west it was the 80s yeah and we were still wearing flares and uh awful kind of uh you know factory produced clothes so were you were you a rebellious teenager? Would you describe yourself as that? Um, it's a long process. You start off. I mean, really, my interest in the West. So I, I, I let's just go a little bit back, uh, and in, into when I was like eight, nine years old. That's when I realized, um, pretty much, there was a West Germany which was different. I couldn't educate myself via um, Western television because it didn't reach Dresden. It was, um, you know, called the Valley of the Uninitiated. Did it have a different name for it? Uh, Valley of the Clueless, I think, was the, the phrase that I heard. <laughs> yes, that's kind of this. And um, we uh, couldn't watch that, uh, so I couldn't see Western advertising. Sometimes that even makes it even bigger in your head, like what you imagine it to be like. We had uh, some far relatives in the West, but they just came like once every three years. That wasn't really a relationship. That was kind of more on my mother's side. And um, my father, because of his job in, in, um, at the university in, in this department, he was not allowed to have Western relatives anyway. So um, 
when you become a teenager, it, it kind of really mattered to us what uh, we were wearing. And I really got into Western culture via music. So I could listen to Western radio. And to be per perfectly uh, frank and honest, the East German radio also had a hit parade where they played international hits. I remember when um, Down Under by Men at Work was in the charts and that was played in, in, in East German radio and so on. And, and, you know, 1982, 1983, I really listened to all the music. And uh, so on the East German radio, I think they mixed it with East German songs, but they actually played Western music to a good percentage. And uh, But the best was listening to uh, Bavaria 3 radio. When the weather was good, it came through nice. Sometimes uh, it just kind of faded away. And then um, for my Jugendweihe, which is the sort of state... Uh, um, what do you call this in England when you go to church at the airport? Confirmation. Yeah, confirmation. Confirmation. Yeah. So we, of course we didn't have confirmation because uh, it was an atheist society. So you could have that if your parents were... Uh, church goers, and of course the church uh, existed in East Germany and played a big role in its downfall. But uh, we had the so-called uh, youth initiation, Jugendweihe, and uh, you would always get presents, and my grandmother got me one of those. It was a mono uh, tape recorder, uh, East German product, and um, you could buy some cassettes. Uh, if you think that an East German worker earned about 750 East German marks on average in a month. And one of the blank cassettes cost 30 East German marks. And that was a, a very expensive piece. Yeah. And you would kind of record and record over and you had a few of those. And we would always uh, record music uh, from uh, West German radio and got, get really annoyed when the um, uh, presenters uh, talked over the songs or into the, the end of songs. So yeah, so I got in, in uh, really um, through music. I really got interested in in uh, West German culture, and um, I hadn't really met too many. And then, uh, very importantly, my grandmother, my favorite grandmother, in 1983, she moved to the West. So that's when I was 14. That's when it really mattered in in my shallow teenagehood. Yeah. So when you wanted to impress girls, for instance, and you wanted to have some nice clothes, and you wanted to give your mate some some vinyl records to to borrow and to record from and things. So she moved uh, to the West because she was a pensioner, and that's the sort of um, almost cynical way the East German government uh, viewed their the older people because they had done their job, they had done their contribution to uh, the paradise of workers and farmers, and um, in a way. You know, if they went, they were allowed to visit the West, and if they didn't come back, fine, get your pension over there. Which, in my uh, grandmother's case, was uh, actually a factor because she got a war uh, widow's uh, pension in West Germany because my grandfather had fallen in Greece, and um, so in East Germany she had a very meager pension. So you wouldn't get a war pension in East Germany. Because in East Germany, there were never any Nazis. There would be never any Nazis. And, uh, of course, all the Nazis lived in the West. And um, I don't know whether my grandfather was a Nazi or not. Uh, he definitely was an officer in, in the army. And um, so that, that was enough for the East Germans to kind of uh, uh, not give that sort of pension to to older people who had lost their, their partners in the war.
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So were you giving your grandmother rather large shopping lists for her to uh, get for you? And she was the one who wouldn't get me cheap stuff either. She would always go to the brand stores and things like this. And she kind of said that, you know, when usually it's it's like this in East Germany, you would get the, the handed down clothes from the cousin from Munich or something like this. Yeah. And, but um, there was, was no such person. And so my grandmother always got me like really nice clothes, which I, honored and cherished and made sure that those adidas trainers lasted five years and still were as white as on day one and um and then uh, yeah i was writing down these lists of uh songs from from the radio and uh central postcards or letters and uh, you know nowadays it might be su- sound surprising that these things actually got through to the west uh but they did you know uh they definitely read letters and that sometimes postcards did not arrive uh either way uh, to the west or to the east but most of the time she got that stuff and then she went into the the record store and and read out the list that i'd written down so i'd written down culture club do you really want to hurt me and uh, nina 99 red balloons and by the time my postcard had uh, reached her these things were uh, these songs were out of the charts there was the, the newest uh, the latest records were in and so instead of do you really want to hurt me i got come a chameleon and uh, I got the second Nina album instead of the first one. And so I was always ultra up to date with everything in, in, in this way. And you had to be careful. You couldn't really take these things into school. So we would uh, listen at home to what we had taped. I mean, bands like Electric Light Orchestra were really, really uh, in with us. Although that's kind of a late 70s into the 80s band. Yeah, ELO. Yeah, ELO. We went. Uh, so in, in class, there was these. Um, I remember when uh, Blue Monday by New Order came out, and that was a big hit in, in our Eastern class. We played that up and down. Uh, when Depeche Mode became famous from 1983 onwards, there was a big uh, Depeche Mode follower group within the class, and uh, it's very uh, big in East Germany. Um, amongst they were huge, weren't they? Yeah. In in yeah. East Germany, Depeche yeah, Mode absolutely huge, and. Um, but also other bands who, who we couldn't see that they wouldn't last that long. So I remember we had these discussions of what's better, Bronski beat or Depeche Mode. And in hindsight, obviously, you know the answer. But it, it was kind of, then we loved Google, we loved um, Duran Duran, Culture Club, uh, Nina, West German bands, and and so on. So that, that was that. And uh, so we shared a lot of music this way. And... Um, what my grandmother never brought me was uh, magazines from the West, like the the Bravo is a youth magazine with uh, pop culture, a lot of pop culture in there and, and other things. And um, 
So that, for instance, was also forbidden. And uh, some kids in class, they were given one of those Bravo magazines by their cousins. Because Western, probably the listener doesn't even know that. So West Germans could always visit East Germany. That was something that was perfectly possible. And the East German government actually encouraged that because they would bring hard cash. They would bring Deutschmarks and they actually had to change a certain amount one-to-one for every day they stayed in East Germany and didn't know what to spend it on. So a lot of uh, these kind of Deutschmarks would then end up with us. And um, and so when, let's say, the uh, the the cousins and the uh, aunts and uncles from West Germany came over once or twice a year, Easter and Christmas usually, they would uh, bring lots of things with them. And if that was a magazine like the Bravo magazine, it was actually called uh, Western Propaganda or Feindliteratur, enemy literature. And if you were found with that in your school bag, you would get in really uh, big trouble. But these magazines passed around every single one of us. And uh, people would take uh, photographs of the posters and actually have them developed as black and white photographs and then kind of did a bit of black market selling on the schoolyard for f- uh, five uh, Ostmark that you could buy a ne- or kiss, kiss on black and white photograph. You could really get into trouble for that. So did you have holidays in other Warsaw Pact countries during this period? Well, living 30 miles, or actually kilometers from the uh, Czech, Czechoslovakian border. My family spent every summer in, in Czechoslovakia, uh, mainly in the what is now the Czech Republic. Uh, sometimes we went to the Baltic Sea in East Germany, uh, sometimes to Thuringia, but more or less it was uh, Czechoslovakia, and I know every little place there, every castle, every, you know, my mom would always drag us onto castles, and that's great as a boy, but you know, once you've seen two, it's enough. And so we, yeah, it's a beautiful, uh, was a beautiful place uh, back then as well. And we went there. Uh, so I'm going back to my, um, you know, years when I was uh, in lower school, six to 10 years old, when you go with your parents on the holiday yeah, and you follow that sort of program. And um, we did very educational things. We went to book. And uh, Prague, and then lots of small places out in the na- uh, in, in the in the mountains, in the forests and lakes. Yeah, you did befriend other children. They were usually Czechs or East Germans as well. So that was that. But um, later on, especially when I was doing my Abitur, my A levels, and that was a different school to my Polytechnical school, where I did up to Zehnte Klasse, Year Ten, Mittlere uh, Reife, which is the sort of GCSE equivalence. Uh, so I went to a different school there and met new people from Dresden and uh, from families of artists and so on. It was a completely new thing. And we uh, discovered many, uh, I discovered many things through them, literature, paintings, theater, and so on that kind of became big. And we went on holiday just uh, with the teenage friends. And uh, this is when we went to Hungary. And we loved Hungary because Hungary was within the Eastern Bloc, let's say the naughtiest student in the Soviet class, um, they were always Western orientated. They were always, you could buy things there. You know, the weather was beautiful. The Balaton Lake was turquoise. It was like for us, like going to Spain. And of course, lots of West Germans and Austrians and Dutch and Finnish people uh, went to Hungary and we would um, hang out with these teenagers there all the time. 
and uh, really socialize with them. Yeah, it was eye-opening. Uh, also, the way they talked and what priorities they had. It wasn't just about, you know, clothes and music anymore. It was pretty much the lifestyle. And let's go to the disco together at the Balaton Lake where they just play Western music again. There was Freddie Goes to Hollywood and there was Dead or Alive. And, and all of this stuff, I remember that. And Modern Talking was this kind of German pop band that was big. And... um Meanwhile, I, I was wearing a lot of uh, Western clothes from my grandmother, and they always thought we, uh, me and my friends, we were Westerners. So there was a surprise when we said we were from East Germany. And um, yeah, we exchanged um, addresses and uh, kept writing, which uh, is a big issue because uh, my friends never had any problems with that. They, you know, but because of my father, I wasn't actually allowed to have Western contact. And you might say now, so why did you have a uh, grandmother in the West? So there was nothing they could do about that. That was already bad enough. And my grand, I'm jumping, but my grandmother in the West could not write to us directly. She couldn't send parcels, the famous vest pakete, which always smelled so nice, uh, um, with chocolate and shampoo and apple soap and clothes and whatever that was in there. Yeah. So she couldn't send this directly to us, but had to send it to a friend of my mother and use the names of their children. In or, and, and then uh, that friend would bring the, the mail around virtually as, as, a, as a layer of security. Whether that was a layer of security, I do not know. Uh, whether they knew about that, I'm um, talking Stasi or whoever's kind of checking the mail, I don't know. But uh, the things came through and I felt emboldened to say, if I can write to my grandmother, I'm just going to, nobody can stop me having friends in Holland and in, in Italy and in Japan. And this is what it was. So I was riding with these uh, mainly girls, and um, we were, um, you know, communicating uh, for years. And I'm still friends with uh, one of them, uh, even today. And our children are friends. Did you have to be careful what you were writing, or were you particularly careful about what you wrote wrote in there, or not? Not really. That's another thing. Because you asked me about whether I was like a rebellious teenager. Let's just say it like this. We know more now in hindsight about uh, how perfidious the East German system was and could be. But as teenagers, we didn't really take it seriously that much. We kind of just uh, ripped it and uh, joked about it. And, and I don't know if going on about it. And... Uh, the attitude was pretty much, yeah, bring it on. If you don't want me to write to them, you know, come out of the shadow and, and, and let me know. So I was writing everything. And she was writing everything. She had nothing. You know, uh, uh, the Dutch friend, the Italians, they just wrote what, whatever, you know, it was just innocent stuff, like what they did and uh, what music they discovered and what they did with their family or the sports clubs and stuff like that. It wasn't anything. We didn't discuss politics. We did not discuss politics. Uh, plus, my Dutch friend is pretty much brought up as a very left-wing uh, person. So uh, for her, that was kind of something she would probably be more positive about East Germany than me. And they came to visit, 1989. They came to visit half a year before the war came down and, and uh, before I tried to escape. So um, the letters did come through to my cousin and not to me uh, directly either. So they were all sent to my cousin with her name, uh, but it was for me. And um, occasionally, 
they were sellotaped, these letters. That, that means they are damaged in, in uh, mail progress, but of course somebody had looked inside. But all photos and stuff was in there. My my uh, fr Dutch friend sent me cassettes, tapes with music. Uh, she introduced me to uh, the more indie and alternative side of things, uh, such as the Smiths and Public Image Limited and uh, the Police. She introduced me to the, these sort of I knew the Police, but kind of uh, sent me lots of stuff. Sonic Youth and bands like this. Up for the first time I heard through her. And um, at the same time, at that sort of phase in my life, uh, the biggest band in East Germany amongst us teenagers was, yeah, Depeche Mode and The Cure. And uh, so that kind of fit. Everything she sent me kind of really expanded my horizon. And, and these, the, these uh, music packages all came through without problems. Everything she sent yeah. me. Yeah. They probably made a copy of it for themselves once <laughs> they... Uh... Probably, yeah, yeah. So um, the East German Youth Radio was called DT64, DT64. And they had a DJ called Lutz Schramm. This guy was a very committed guy. And he uh, did some kind of podcasts about this or talked on radio about this after uh, reunification. And he would always kind of explore like new bands. And he would uh, have friend DJs in West Berlin get him the records. And he would play them on the radio because the problem, uh, not the problem, uh, the good thing was about East Germany, there was no licensing um, issues or any concern. You could just, they could just play what they wanted to play. Yeah. So it, it was called paroctikum. And paroctikum uh, basically uh, were play on word on panopticum for like a variety of different things. He played entire Sisters of Mercy albums. And, and so, so he played all of the stuff and we could record that. And there was also, uh, they also, in the afternoons, they played entire Western records. And for instance, Prince, Sign of the Times, over four weeks, it's a double album, they would play side A, B, C, D over four weeks on a Thursday afternoon. You could just record the whole thing. And uh, that's just one example. So you were out spending your money buying loads of tapes for that then? Yeah, I wouldn't want to overtape. And then um, they played the Smiths, they, uh, and then... Um, when it was German, West German musicians, they would pick. They would not play the whole album. They would pick the songs which lyrics they thought were okay. So, for instance, Nina was never both sides. It was just always like a, a, a Querschnitt and uh, like six songs out of 12 they would play or something like this. Yeah, I mean, did they play 99 Red Balloons in East Germany or not? Uh, I, do, I don't remember whether they played that. It was anything to do with... Uh, the peace movement in the West was tricky because the East Germans didn't want a peace movement in their own country. It was all great. It was kind of, actually, we know now that the Stasi kind of steered it a lot. The whole uh, anti-Pershing marches in, in Bonn and so on. So they were influencing that. But they didn't want the same because it was a different thing for them whether the Soviets would station SS-20s in, in East Germany, that was just a defensive measure, but uh, the West was being aggressive with that Pershing, although it was a reaction to the Soviet stationing. And um, so anything with peace marches and, and songs about let's just sit together and sort this nonsense out, that wasn't uh, in their line of thinking at all. Because we had a poem, for instance, in school, which was uh, called uh, Peace Also Has to Be Armed. And it was about a hedgehog. 
the poem was about a hedgehog and 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 the hedgehog got accused of being like a weapon carrying whatever and then he said no 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 but this is just for defense and i need that and that's kind of how, how we learned as children about the east german army having to be well equipped in order to defend uh the republic yeah even stories about hedgehogs were political yeah a poem just for that tell me about your uncle uh, my uncle was basically the son of my favorite grandmother who went to the West in 83. And so the the brother of my mother and he uh, had his own garage. Now in East Germany, there were some uh, privately owned businesses in a way, you know, very limited. There wasn't big competition. You couldn't make tons of money and profit and so on, but you could run if you had that, especially uh, butchers, bakers, all of these sort of craftsmen jobs. Of course, there were private uh, businesses as well. He had a, a, a garage for uh, Soviet cars, uh, Moskvich and uh, Volgas, and these were the cars which not really ordinary people would drive. Ordinary people would drive Trabant and Wartburg and Skodas and um, Dacias from uh, we still have around from Romania. So Volgas and Moskvich were used by the police, by the taxis, by just like bigger organizations within the East German state. Mostly the forestry, for instance. Agriculture, uh, like the, the bosses of the big um, LPGs, which was the communal farms and so on. So they would drive around in these cars. And um, East Germany was a society of lacking material. A lacking society in many things so there wasn't enough of many things and especially car parts was a big um you know issue that often there weren't enough around to repair the cars and you had to kind of almost triage and prioritize and and see how you could get through all of this and you needed good connections and uh through this sort of uh work and uh business my uncle had very good Within East Germany, he lived a completely different life. So he had his own bungalow. He, in the early 80s, he built a uh, small, for Western standards, but a small swimming pool. And my cousin, she, uh, uh, three years younger than me, you know, she lived uh, there in this bungalow and they had lots of Western stuff because on his side, there were more Western relatives, which had, didn't have really uh, much to do with um, my family. That was not his side, but his wife's side. So that makes sense. And um, so um, they had, they basically, for me, it was like, I'm going to, to West Germany when I went to him. It was like, you know, there was everything galore. And um, I spent all my weekends at my cousins and then with, with her friends and so on. And um, so the whole connections, bit, for instance, would go like this. You say to the the forestry organization you say okay we're going to repair your you can repair your car and uh, out of thankfulness they would bring you half a deer or a wild boar they had shot and that would all go into his deep freezers he would always have these uh, sort of things and then he would get uh, peaches and um, fruits from from the farmers they had traded them from, up from Hungary and that stuff he wouldn't get in the supermarket it wasn't called supermarket, it was called Kaufhalle, the, the, the shopping hall within the, um, the living area. So that didn't have that sort of uh, things that he had. And, uh, you know, for me, he was like somebody 
I looked up to. But then again, he was, you know, very uh, a very self-centered person, and um, he would sit there in his kind of um, white shirt with a necklace, like you couldn't imagine. With his music, he was still set in the fifties when he was uh, a bit of a teddy boy, and so he still had the kind of the hair and everything, and uh, listened to rock and roll music in Elvis Presley. You're seeing these Western influences through the music, through the kids you're meeting on holiday and corresponding with them. At what point did you think, I need to get to the West? Um, It kind of started when I was 15, 16, to seriously think about it, but knowing that I really didn't have uh, much of a chance. So I passed it my parents because there was a way of how you could apply to uh, leave East Germany. To be basically ausgebürgert means you, lo- you lose your citizen rights for East Germany and you could go to the West. It was a process which depended on lots of variables whether that would be successful. But what was for sure is as soon as you filled in that application, the Ausreiseantrag, the um, application to leave uh, the DDR, East Germany, as soon as you done that, you would lose your job. It depended on the job, clearly, but uh, if it was anything, for instance, if you were a teacher and you did that, you were not teaching anymore. And you would be sitting on packed boxes because it could be any time they say you've got 24 hours to leave. But most of the time they would let you sit there for a couple to three years. And it was uh, very much uh, that sort of thing. But uh, I know from uh, a girl in my class when I was in the theater class in, in year four, uh, she suddenly said, oh, we're moving to West Germany. I said, what? How did that come about? And we were all kind of flabbergasted. And, but that had been running for like two years in the background without her being allowed by her mom to say anything about it. You know, don't mention it. And then, yeah, so she said then, uh, she stayed in contact with uh, other girls in the class and then they showed photos of how she uh, lived her life in West Germany. And, I, you know, as a teenager we kind of got jealous of that and um so i asked my parents can we do that as well can we uh, apply and you know why would why would i my mom said why would we we have everything we we need we, you know we have a good job and you know it's like starting again and they weren't that old they were like in their i don't know late 30s early 40s you know so uh they didn't want to start again and and um so that was this and then we kind of joked around with uh, those uh, Western uh, youngsters we met in Hungary. So we went down there. And then when they all got on their coach to go back via Austria to West Germany, you kind of joked about could, could we hide a suitcase compartment down there. But of course, that was just no options. We knew that the border would be uh, something you can't cross. Uh, I'd seen uh, the Berlin Wall on school trips. Uh, from the eastern side and we knew about it and we talked about this although uh, of course in the official line was this was the anti-fascist um, defense wall from the east, in east German lingo so in school we learned about but we weren't allowed to call it Berlin Wall it was virtually the anti-fascistische Schutzwall the anti-fascist uh, defense wall uh, or protection wall against the agents and provo- pro- provocateurs from, from the west who want, wanted to undermine the East German state. And um still remember that propaganda phraseology. Of course. 
course. And um, so I knew there's no chance getting out. You know, that's why we tried to recreate that sort of lifestyle as much as we could with what we had. And um, it became more urgent the closer I got to army service. So let's say the two years uh, of my abitur, my abitur, my A-level years, in a way, out of my school class, uh, in which I was for 10 years, only two people went on to A-level college. You needed to have a really good uh, average on, on, on your grades. A 1.2 as a girl or something like this, and a 1.4 or something as a boy. One being the highest grade and five being the lowest. And uh, so that's on, on average for all the subjects. And it was just me and another boy who, who got into uh, the EOS, the Erweiterte Oberschule, the extended um, upper school. And I don't think any of the girls went. And um, my mom always said, oh, you were lucky that you were a boy because if you had been a girl, your average wouldn't have been good enough. So they kind of, being a five-year plan economy, they looked at how many boys, how many girls they led into the uh, the next, uh, the further education there, and and, the, and everybody else would do an apprenticeship virtually. So when we then joined this school, there was like kids, intelligent because as I just said, from you know intelligentsia families, artist families, and so on from the center of Dresden, and uh, you know, and they just it was a completely different world. And we talked a lot of politics, of course, as well. And um, with uh, the prospect of going to the National People's Army, it became quite urgent because we knew, as as, as young men especially, you didn't have you you couldn't uh, you know apply for leaving West Germany. They wouldn't let you out at that age at all, especially not before you'd done your army service. And after that, even less so. So we were thinking about what to do, but pretty much it got quite depressing. We got quite depressive about it. There's nothing to do. So again, we just kind of compensated with having our cultural life in Dresden, which was booming. Uh, our biggest hobby was the theater in Dresden. It was amazing in the late 80s. It was, uh, we saw, for instance, Waiting for Godot by Beckett, of course, all in German. It's usually supposed to be played by uh, two old men under a tree in no man's land somewhere. It was played by the, the youngest actors out of acting school in East Germany. And the, the director had put like quite a few swipes towards the East German regime in there, in the translations. And so they would do that and uh, in a hidden way. And you could pick it out if you're clever enough. And it, uh, so I, I saw that play about five or six times. I enjoyed it so much. And the theater, instead of cinema, cinema was like, you know, two good movies a year, virtually. They showed Beverly Hills Cop in East Germany. And, and things like this in, in German translation. Mm. Eddie Murphy and, and a few of these things I remember. But um, Name of the Rose with Sean Connery and uh, some Robert De Niro films, actually. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was uh, running when I was uh, A-level student and The Mission with Robert De Niro, so that, some of these films. But uh, theater was so much better. And yeah, and then we, we kind of uh, thought about these things, but there's nothing we could do about it. And uh, The Cure providing the soundtrack for those years, you can imagine that's yeah. the way we live. Yeah. <laughs> can imagine. Well, soundtrack to a lot of kids' lives. I mean, uh, The Cure was a, a big part of, um, of my life as well. So what do you do? Do you start actively, you know, the, the clock's ticking. You're going to get 
conscripted into the National People's Army. So do you and your friends start actively planning some options? Not yet. Basically not during the school times. Um, During the school years, um, we had to be very careful because, you know, when I said earlier in the lowest or in the middle school, it was a two-tier society within class with those having, uh, like, split between those with rest and relatives and those without. That was still the case in the A-level years, in the upper-tour years. But you also needed to look at who was uh, potentially somebody you would tell on you for what you said. And there were people in the class who wanted to be criminal police, crime inspectors, but that would not be without Stasi in East Germany, these sort of things. And people who had uh, volunteered to do three years in the army instead of the compulsory one and a half. And so on, as you could kind of really, and some of the girls as well, wanted to go into medicine and so on. You had to be really towing the party line careers and you had to be uh, very careful with what you said in that class of 25 there would be possibly three or four i guess who would have something to say to somebody about you so we couldn't really talk about that Uh, i kind of had a very good friend within the class and uh also um one uh in a different class who in the end tried to escape with me that one from the other from the other class and uh the friend in my uh class we were the only two who had not uh, signed up for three years army service to extend voluntarily to become a, like a unter officer NCO non-commissioned officer yeah, yeah exactly. and uh, I remember one day we were yanked out of our maths class so the door opens and it goes like um, Henry and Henry come out now you need to go see the, uh, there's somebody for you. So I just, okay, great, we're getting out of mass. So out we walked down the kind of Kaiserreich building. It's like an old, it was the, 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 uh, the school was one of those brick buildings from the German Empire days. Yeah. So kind of really impressive and imposing. And we walked down the halls and then we went to the small room where there was an officer from, from the army. And he was talking, yeah, um, so what about the three years? We really need officers, and it would open up all sorts of career opportunities for you. I didn't know what to say, and then uh, then he was just going like, not for me. That's not for me. I can't really imagine that. He just kept playing like, you know, like sometimes you talk when uh, when you just stick to your line. So he just really uh, did that. It was like no comment. It was like this. Yeah, and I didn't know. I was just completely, I just went there. Yeah, me neither, me neither. And then, well, a bit angry, but they let us go back into class. And then uh, the miracle happened. A few weeks later, he was called into the head teacher's office. And the head teacher was telling him that he's not going to the army at all. Because he had received, the, the, the army had received a um, certificate from his doctor that he's got a very bad back and he possibly cannot uh, serve in the army. And uh, there were probably a bit annoyed but he came back into I remember it was lunch he came back like I'm not going war and, and so he was really happy now I was like, oh, great for you yeah and then a couple of weeks later it was me so um, we all had to go to the Wehrkreiskommando which is the kind of recruitment office to be checked all the boys uh, to be checked uh, whether they are fit for a medical examination for army service we had all done that sort of thing and um, I also had a very good um doctor as a child and she 
went big on my asthma and my, my allergy. And she wrote something I possibly would betray the entire unit by sneezing behind in, in the ambush or something like this. And just, you know, something like that. They couldn't imagine. They couldn't send me anywhere. Uh, and um, so I was called into the head teacher and he went like, I've got really bad news for you. And really bad news. Um, unfortunately, you will not be able to go to the army. And he really made it like I would break down in tears. And I was just kind of, oh, it's a shame. And and you've been, uh, your your service has been put back until after university. That was a way. So they would say, you're still going, but you're going to uni first. So I was off the hook with that, whereas other good friends actually went. And I had a, there was no gap year in East Germany normally, but suddenly I had a gap year because I had this sort of unplanned uh, year and a half until my uh, un university course was supposed to start, in which then we had the capacity. I mean, I, I've worked in a, in, a, in a data processing factory with a big kind of James Bond magnet tapes, that sort of job. Yeah. In, in that year, so I did work. I didn't hang around, but um, my friend and I, we kind of had more time on our hands and brain capacity to think about how we could get out of uh, East Germany. And that's that when he came up with that story from friends of his who I didn't know, who had been caught trying to escape. And their story kind of um, inspired us to, to try that again uh, as well. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Just tell me what their story was. What, what was that? So we were, this was just already after our two years, A-level two years in that sort of gap year. We were sitting in my friend's kind of house and, uh, and he said, oh, by the way, there's this guy called uh, Peter, who I know. You don't know him, it's like from my old school. And um, he and two of his friends tried to escape. They tried to cross the Iron Curtain. And they got caught. And that's all I know. And we were sitting there just thinking, oh my God, it's never ever would I do that. Uh what now and and then he went like they probably go to they will go to prison but we don't know yet It'll, you know it will take months until we know anything and um so we're really scared and at the same time there was hope because east germany was supposed to publish a new travel law in late 88 a neues reisegesetz and um uh, we pinched kind of some hope that there would be some uh, lenience towards younger people to at least go for a day or have a visa for a day to go to the West, which means you would never come back. But um, of course, that didn't happen. 
So when that law got published in, in the Neues Deutschland, which was the party uh, newspaper, the one and only newspaper, and uh, I read through all the double page spread of what that law text was, and it was just worse than before. It was even, they said something about if you didn't go to the army, uh, you haven't gone to the army, young men will not be allowed to travel anywhere and not for years afterwards, basically, something like this. So it was really discouraging and we really felt, um, yeah, we are kind of trapped. I really felt trapped at that time. Really felt trapped. There was like this kind of grim autumn 88 and, um, you know, uh, Honecker, the uh, the boss, East German uh, party secretary, and uh, also the state uh, went to West Germany, and he um, got received by uh, Chancellor Helmut Kohl on a red carpet, and he made his speech about the Berlin Wall being there for good reason, and it will still be there in a hundred years if the conditions for it, uh, which led to its uh, erection, haven't changed. So that was this kind of sentence he said. That was uh, Erich Honecker's biggest uh, moment in his career when he was in Bonn with the West German government. And of course, the West German government never recognized East Germany as a state. And therefore, they would regard all East German citizens automatically also as their German citizens. Mm-hmm. Of course, the East German government saw this differently and you didn't have a, 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 the means to leave. And you had your East German passport and things like this. But the West German government regarded all Germans as their responsibility and they never recognized the state. So uh, Erich Honecker's uh, state visit to Helmut Kohl, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, was like almost like a justification and uh, you know, redemption for for the state to, to be finally recognized. And, and, and they just then spelled it out clearly in, in that uh, new amendment to the travel law, which made it stricter. So we really uh, had didn't see any chance. And that's when a few months later, kind of in the middle of this, uh, from my friend comes the news, and he said, I've heard from Peter. Uh, they've been sentenced. They've been sentenced to, uh, I don't know what it was, two years something in prison. And again, it was absolutely uh, shocking for us. So now we know how much you get if you try that. And then again, a few months later, he said, I've got a postcard. I've got a postcard from, and I said, from who? And he said, oh, well, it's from Peter. It's from Mallorca. I said, wait a minute. This was just like four months ago. They got arrested. How on earth are they writing a postcard from Mallorca? And that's when it kind of dawned upon us that you can be, you can get out by whatever means. You can get out by going to prison because you tried to escape over the Iron Curtain, which was uh, a paragraph in the in the German uh, law codex that this is not allowed and you will be punished with prison for that, virtually exercising the human right of uh, freedom to move. So we didn't know how, why. We only knew that it had happened. And uh, we kind of started hearing rumors because you know, suddenly when you kind of sharpened or uh, when your mind is uh, kind of focused on something, you suddenly hear things that before you might have ignored. And it seemed that um, you would be let out of prison early. Under which conditions, we didn't know. But it seemed to be a way of escaping. 
So we started more and more talking about this in early uh, 89. How can we uh, get out? What if we try? What if we get caught? Well, if we make it, brilliant. Then that's fantastic. If we make it, then we've made it. If not, you know, with um, army somewhere on the line after university, that's probably, and we knew already that people who were in the National People's Army, that this was not a Zuckerschlecken, as we say. It wasn't kind of a an easy thing to do. And we thought, you know, uh, if we get caught, then let's see what happens, whether we end up also on the West. That basically, as desperate as it sounds, as kind of a big unknown and question mark it was, it seemed like the only option to us, the only option. So we started kind of thinking about this. We kind of stopped the talk there. Then we got back to it a few weeks later and so on. It kind of developed that idea. And at one point he said to me, I've got another friend who, again, I didn't know who would like to come with us. I was, uh, I think I was more like a, a passive role in this, um, just kind of going along with it. But then we all kind of uh, agreed at one point that we would try to get out. And we had agreed we will not try the German-German border, never mind Berlin. That would be crazy because we knew about uh, deaths on the wall. Again, not through official uh, newspaper bulletins, but through uh, word of mouth and rumors. We also thought the uh, the German border guard, East German border guards would just be like really hot on shooting people down. And so we thought we'd try one of the other socialist countries and try to get uh, to one of the Western countries. So we looked around and, and thought, what can we do? So my parents had a hiking map from an area where there was a lake right on the austrian Czechoslovakia border with uh, camping sites near that border. And normally, if you uh, lived in East Germany, you wouldn't get anywhere near the Iron Curtain. Yes, in Berlin, you could get pretty close to the Berlin Wall, but again, the last bit of crossing the road to the Berlin Wall would already cause you problems. You know, never mind putting a ladder against and trying to get over. That's just, uh, you, you would be asked where are you going and somebody would probably uh, In the normal countryside, like the Iron Curtain between uh, East and West Germany, which went through fields and forests and so on and along the rivers, um, you needed special permission to even get into the 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 kind of uh, zone, which I think it was, I'm not sure, was it 30 kilometers, something like this. Uh, uh, you had to, if you lived in there, you had a special permit. And uh, if you wanted to go there, you needed, this, you know, you needed a good reason. So I know from other people who escaped, who I met in prison later, and they had, for instance, uh, been driving towards the area of the Iron Curtain and they were stopped by traffic police. And then they found climbing um, spikes for their shoes in the boot. And there was three, again, three young men in a car from, from Dresden going hundreds of kilometers away uh, towards the Iron Curtain. That was enough reason to arrest them. Of course, that we didn't know in detail, but we thought um, we can't do this in, in Germany, in East Germany, in, in the GDR. And so we uh, thought that's a good way of getting near that Iron Curtain in, in Czechoslovakia because with these camping sites right on the lake and uh, virtually three kilometers or less from the Iron Curtain, we could uh, try that. Um, again, 
East German maps of the time will not show you anything on the western side. So if you get a city map of uh, East Berlin, uh, you would see where the border is, but then on the western side it would just be a, a wide uh, blob. There was nothing there. You couldn't even see the streets where you would end up and so on. Um, and uh, the same was uh, could be said about that uh, hiking map from Czechoslovakia. So the Austrian side was not mapped out. But for us it was just enough to know that's Austria. So that's what we decided to do. And it got quite late now. We felt a bit... Um, we felt a bit... Uh, we have a really good word in German. I don't know whether you've heard. This is called Porschusspanik. It's the panic that the gate might close in front of you and you're not getting in or getting out or something like this, whatever you want. Yeah? It, it's used for people who are not married at the age of 35, like in the olden days it was used for that, and then they had torsos panic, and, you know, or it was uh, used for any sort of um, thing where it's just time is ticking away and everybody makes it, but you don't. Uh, I think it comes from the Middle Ages when they closed the city gates. And if you were not in, then that was trouble. And um, so we had this torsos panic that things would get worse in East Germany. Gradually, or quite quickly, actually. And we knew that Ceausescu was running a tight ship down in Romania. That's what people would say when they came back from holidays from there. And we kind of knew that. And we were kind of... Tiananmen Square hadn't happened yet. But uh, this sort of vibes was in the Eastern Blocks. Yeah? Whereas the Poles were already kind of, um, you know, having liberation movements in Solidarność since the 80s. And they were kind of, um, yes, subdued, but at least, um, you know, there were people trying. And Hungary, uh, just the government itself, was pretty lax with things for e for Eastern Bloc standards. But every everybody else was just like, you know, Romania was the toughest of them all. And it was the only country where shots were fired in 89. And um, so we kind of felt that. Then uh, we thought we need to try now because it might be too late. And maybe they are not uh, letting you out again, uh, anymore to the West if it gets harsher and harsher. So um, it was now already April. Um, so in April, my Dutch pen friend visited me with her partner in East Germany. Yeah. And uh, I told her about our plans. And she knew. And I told her, if we get caught, can you contact... Uh, I also had an aunt, meanwhile, my grandmother had died, meanwhile, uh, but uh, my aunt had stayed in the West in 87 or 88, so I had an aunt in the West now, and um, so she was allowed to, on, on humanitarian reasons, to, to travel to the West, because one of the relatives on her side was like um, terminally ill, and, and so she was allowed, and then she stayed, and she basically had done the, in inverted comma, crime that I was tempting, but she done it for real. She actually was in the West, and she would have been arrested ever if she ever set foot back into East Germany. But I told my Dutch friend, if, if, if you don't hear from me within two weeks, I will write your postcard from Austria if you make it. If you don't get that postcard, you need to inform her so she can inform the West German authorities. Gave her all the names and everything. Um, and although she uh, she still says, I'm so glad I saw East Germany half a year before before it uh, ended up on the trashing of history. Right? So um, she, you know, she she really kind of was more positive as Germany than I was. 
at the time, but of course she had me with that, and she she saw that this was not a liberal left wing democracy, but some sort of dictatorship. I uh, gave her all the information, and then when they went back to to Holland, uh, it was time for us to go. Did you think about what impact it would have on your parents if you escaped? Massively, massively. And it sounds, it might sound really like, oh my God, what, what did this guy think? How can he just, you know, uh, leave his family and things like this? But it was, we were very, very desperate to get out and we did not see a future necessarily for us in East Germany. We didn't want that. We didn't want to go to, uh, through the whole, uni and army because after that it's even less likely once the state had invested in your education and a lot of these kind of so-called social achievements of east germany were there you know free education and uh you know when i said earlier a, a cassette cost uh 30 Aust uh, east german marks but the rent for your for your apartment was only a hundred or something like this you know so it's kind of um there were lots of um social achievements which um the state was proud of and which in a way bankrupted the state because they couldn't afford them. We were really desperate. So uh, my parents, I knew I could not tell. Had I told my parents, they, A, would have prevented me going. That's number one. So my mother said, well, would have cut your passport in pieces like she had cut the t-shirt before, you know. And, um, so I had told my sister who was younger and who was underage and we kind of assumed that uh, even with everything that uh, going on in the Stasi country, uh, she would not be made liable. And um, so again, I said, if I'm not coming back, then you need to tell the parents as rough as I was. But I also didn't want to tell my parents because had they known, they would have been guilty as well. They would have been um, made responsible if I had then still gone with them knowing that would have just lost, they would have lost their jobs straight away. But I guess with you leaving by implication, they may have known. So there would have been suspicion on them that might have affected their careers. Yes. And I mean, the Stasi was there within, you know, uh, a day of my arrest in, in Czechoslovakia. And, um, the Stasi was there. They searched my room in in the flat, um, and the way my mother was uh, completely dissolved in tears and everything. Now, I don't think there was any doubt in the, in the Stasi guy's mind that this was unknown to my parents. Yeah, so it was basically a formality for them to just grab the things they need to grab from my room and uh, and then inform my parents and. Uh, my father, indeed, got um, ordered to the in the Ministry of the Interior, Innenministerium in, in East Berlin, uh, because of his position in the uh, university. And he was about to become the deacon of the faculty that was kind of in the pipeline, and that did not happen now anymore because of me. And he, were, he told me later it was an absolutely nasty meeting run by the Stasi, I suppose, in the, or the uh, Minister of the Interior, which was probably the same thing in that case. And he was told what went wrong in the upbringing of your son. 
how uh, do you have a son that kind of you know, turns his back on on a country? So it was a very nasty meeting, and he was threatened with not being able to uh, carry out his job anymore. And my mother, completely uh, thrown by this, wrote to the interior ministry. This wasn't his fault, my father's fault, and he couldn't have known about this, and so on. So then my father was asked to distance himself from his own wife, which he didn't do. But that was the sort of um, psycho pressure. So uh, that's always the thing, that if people mix up the Stasi and the Gestapo, yeah, because it kind of sucks. Uh, the Gestapo would be very brutal in Nazi times and, and uh, less psychological. They would be straight out, uh, straight up brutal um, and physical and murder and, and, and kill people and so on. Uh, whereas the Stasi worked with um, psychological pressure. They would really exercise that. Uh, it was called Zersetzung, disintegration of a mind. And uh, they would do everything to kind of play one in the family against another and to, you know, threaten with, uh, the Nazis called it Sippenhaft. I don't want to go that far, uh, which is kind of your, you know, uh, arrest of your family if one of the family members does something so everybody else has to suffer. But in, 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 in these sort of uh, uh, spheres, you know, the uh, world of work and, and your career within East Germany, uh, they would really, uh, you know, make your life hard. And uh, so that still happened. But in a way, they were protected by not knowing, by not having known before. Tell me how the uh, escape attempt goes. You're going to have to wait till next week to hear how Henrik fares in his escape. However, in the meantime, you can listen to Henrik's playlist in the episode notes. He tells me that if his life was made into a movie, this would be the soundtrack. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information